Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the cross-asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week on the show, the stock market may be buying the vaccine optimism, but the bond market isn't really budging. Tina forever, or in other words, there is no alternative. In a world where low interest rates have become the norm, our guest walks us through where to find alpha. And as always, don't fret, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, I'm returning to my roots in the alternative asset space for this this segment this week. I've got to say I'm really proud because a listener did write in. And not only did he write in, he had a prices right for you. So we're going to turn Ooh. the tables on you. Ooh. And then you could also very much describe it in alternative assets. So don't Ooh. you worry. I like the prices right element. That listeners <laughs> sliding into Sarah's DM, I, I believe, is is what what that's known as. That's what's happening lately. <laughs> All right, fine, that's good. We'll accept we'll accept submissions that week. Also, Sarah, a very perilous podcast this week because, by my count, apart from the guest who I'll introduce in a moment, within microphone range, we also have one puppy, one one year old baby, I believe, or a year and a half, and and one really loud mouthed dog. That that's my dog. So. So this should be interesting. I, I don't Recipe know. Recipe for success? Maybe. Uh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we should, and a cat, I believe, a cat as well. So we should have a uh, a pool to see which uh, which of these disrupts the the content first. But <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we'll get through it with uh, some silence from all the dogs and babies and cats. Uh, part of the what goes up team here. But let's get to that guest. First time on the show, we're very happy to have him. He is the managing director of multi-asset solutions at Man Solutions, which is a division of Man Group, the big hedge fund firm. His name is Peter Vanderwert. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, Peter, I wanted to just start off by, since Man Group is such a big company, it runs a lot of different funds, a lot of different strategies. I'm just curious what the how the solutions group works into the firm and your role specifically. I mean, my impression is that the solution groups kind of creates bespoke portfolios based on what certain clients need. Is is that a fair uh, assessment of what you guys do? Yeah, that's exactly right. So what we do in Man Solutions, we reach across the engine. So Man has basically four distinct meaningful engines. We have a pure discretionary group called GLG. We've got a quant arm called AHL, which does a lot of trend and systematic strategies. We have Numeric, which does more equity trading, quantumental, and then some private markets. Man Solutions kind of reaches across those various engines, looking for things that we can use to help clients, whether it's based on risk control or generating alpha, but in a bespoke way. So the, the real overarching goal at Man Solutions a bit to deconstruct the hedge fund and, and deliver exactly what clients need as opposed to trying to just keep giving them the same product or the same product pitch. So to keep it pretty broad, I mean, 
considering where we stand in 2020, like I mentioned, bond yield extremely low. How much growth have you seen and how difficult has it become to kind of cre- come up with creative new solutions to get through the environment that we've been living in? Yeah, so um, a lot of our clients are, are basically institutional investors. So the types that are grappling with the bond problem for two reasons. And you know, the first half of the problem is that yields are really low and they have pretty high return objectives, right? So your average pension in the U.S. needs to make 7% to meet the return target. If you own a 1% yielding asset, you're really not going to get there easily, right? You need that much. Good luck with yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> you need that much more contribution from bonds. And so that's problem number one. And problem number two is 60-40 has been really easy to run statically, right? It's just, it's a made up number. It's a made up construct. It's worked for 30 years and everyone quite likes it, right? But if you get past the made upness of it, it happens to be pretty stable because bonds contribute during a crash. And I think there's an increasing concern that maybe bonds don't have that much left to give in the next crash. So if I don't make much money in yield and I don't get much out of a crash, then what is it doing in my portfolio at all is the question we get. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up, Peter. I, I feel like I've edited about 100 straight stories about the death of 60-40 and, and what's, what's replacing everything in that 40%. You sound like you're on the front lines of that. Is there really this legitimate groundswell of people trying to reimagine that 60-40? And granted, like as you said, that's a made-up number. Maybe you're really 70-30 or 50-50 if you're more conservative. But it really does seem like there's this mad dash to, to sort of replace that 40 with something uh, a little bit... Uh, you know, uh, better yielding than than treasuries at this point. You know, the 60-40 is kind of the straw man that everyone uses. I mean, by and large, I'd love to tell you that all of our pensions are 60-40 and 40% in treasuries, <laughs> but I mean, they've already taken a sneaky walk away from 40% sovereign bonds and they've picked up more corporate credit. They've picked up some high yield. So the 40 doesn't exactly look like treasury bonds. The 60, though, really does look a lot like equities. So that part, yeah. you know, they're still looking for a return. And so one of the arguments I do get, though, for people who use treasuries and still rely on them is if you're a big 500 billion pension or a huge institution, what can you get that's scalable like bonds are scalable? The, the nice thing about U.S. deficit spending is that there's, you know, 20, 30 trillion of bonds available if you need to use them. <laughs> It's pretty hard to say I can get 30 trillion of gold unless, you know, Elon Musk succeeds and sends something to an asteroid and and mines a bunch of gold (laughs) up there and brings it back, (laughs) at which point it might not be worth exactly what you thought it was worth, but at least you have enough gold for your portfolio solution. Uh, Sarah, I think Peter's been listening to to my strategy there. That that, that Sunday launch. <laughs> I think space. so too. We've yeah. we've uh, brought up the asteroid a fair <laughs> amount of times. I think it's come up on the last three shows somehow. <laughs> it was uh, unintentional. Really... I, I promise you. But it's, <laughs> no, I, I agree. Really hot I, topic. I think Elon's the only one who will be able to do it, and I think it perfectly finally explains Tesla's valuation. But, is that, but you is that, you realize the there's it. a Twilight Zone episode that's predicated on them finding infinite amount of gold, and they like go into like some kind of deep sleep. They wake up 500 years later and gold is worthless because there's infinite amount of gold (laughs) in the world. So the the, the end isn't really good. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. 
And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts You know, you, you bring up, you do bring up gold, and I, I want to ask you about gold, Peter. What is the role of gold in a portfolio right now? I feel like this year there has been a, a lot of back and forth about the use of gold. Some say, yes, it's an inflation hedge. Others say it's just a, a safe haven. Um, lately, though, the, the narrative has been that we're going to get a vaccine, whether it's from Pfizer, Moderna, a mix of, of the two or even more. Uh, we'll see growth pick up. We'll see inflation pick up. But gold has not been rising as it did earlier in the year. It's been falling. Like what? What's the situation there? What's the case? Well, I, I think the problem with gold when people talk about it is th- this tendency that we need to explain a day's move based on something, right? Stocks were down, marketing crisis, gold is up or you know, something, inflation is showing up, gold is up. I think if we really bottom line what's happening is, first, the Fed's kept rates low. So gold as an alternative is not painful to carry. So there's nothing wrong with that. I do think there's a narrative calling it a safe haven. You know, Cam Harvey, who you may have had on before, I think, has talked about it as a safe haven. And I'm kind of with him. It's a little hard on portfolio construction to have assets that fall with equities as, as frequently as gold does. And it's a high vol asset, right? It's 17, 18 vol. It's as volatile as equities are. So it's not the easiest thing to use in your portfolio as a safe haven, but I see the logic of it, right? You can kind of feel reliable. On the flip side, the inflation bit, Cam's written a lot about that, you know, the fact that it seems like gold prices way outstripped the level of inflation. What you see is it seems to be low level of rates that's pushing gold higher. So gold is quite correlated to bonds. So if I'm a big pension, I say, how do I replace my bonds? Maybe I should use gold. The first thing I find is that when equities fall, sometimes it falls. So that's not a good bond replacement. And the second thing I find is over the last 20 years, it's been very correlated to bonds, which means if bonds fall, it's likely gold falls. So that means I'm replacing a bond with something that's behaving a bit like a bond on a risk basis. So the whole narrative works if the Fed keeps rates controlled and we have inflation. That's when you want to own gold. It's a pretty narrow subset of things that might happen to to make that really work. But then you'll see flow of funds. And I think gold is very much a flow of funds thing. You know, as much money and sentiment builds up, it keeps going and going and going. And so we like looking at that more on a trend basis, maybe, you know, owning it in the trend and getting rid of it if the trend breaks and using it in that kind of construction. But I think the big dilemma for all investors, again, the scalable concept would you replace 40% of your portfolio with gold? And first, you probably wouldn't. Second, there actually isn't enough gold out there, right? The World Gold Council has a cool website you can check out at gold.org, and they tell you kind of what they think, how much gold is above the ground and how much is in the ground. And there's a few trillion dollars of gold left in the ground. So that's not enough for the 200 trillion of financial assets to use as a diversifier. So in a way, gold is, in terms of what could cause a super spike, there's not enough gold out there. 
but it's also its own worst enemy because you know if everyone needs it, there's just not enough of it. So it kind of doesn't fit a solution unless you're a niche investor. And so I do think some of our investors are a bit guilty of saying it's not scalable, so I won't use it. Well, it's scalable if you're running $10, 20000000000 billion, right? It just isn't scalable for everyone. But I think a reliability is really the key thing, right? Does it fit my portfolio? Is it reliable? Does it kind of do what I want? If it goes down a lot in a crash, it's draining liquidity from me, where bonds have historically given me liquidity. That's a big problem, right? So I think when we look at portfolio constructions, we want to make sure that the hedge-like things, the diversifiers, don't take liquidity from you. Right. It seems to me... Um difficult, maybe impossible, that if you are trying to replace that 40% or whatever your, your bond allocation is, that you pretty much have to embrace more risk to do that, which just kind of goes against the grain of why you, you have that 40, 40% in, a, in the safety of bonds to begin with. And one alternative I've, I've heard a few times is, well, look at some of the real cyclical currencies, you know, and if, if you're, you know, want sort of a hedge against a, an economic slowdown, you could short some of the cyclical currencies, I guess, you know, maybe the, the Kiwi or the Aussie dollar or something like that. That strikes me as especially risky. But is that, you know, does that fit into a possible bond replacement is, is sort of dabbling in the currency markets? Because I got to say, you know, it's it's a treacherous place for people who aren't sort of dedicated to to that macro look view of the world and and the currency. So you know if I don't love gold given some of its risk attributes and it, and it does work I think in some portfolio constructions over a long term currencies are going to be a bit of a worry. So we do run hedging businesses, tail hedge type uh, uh, portfolios for clients. And actually Aussie dollar is one of those currencies that does really badly in deflationary times. It's pretty reliable and we like using options around it because options are often very cheap. So it's pretty cool to use in a solution with a lot of different things that might be going. So you have option hedges and indices and currencies and gold and credit. As a composite, that works pretty well. But if you're going to start relying on it again for a slug of the 40%, there's a couple things. You got to make sure you're right. It, pretty much you feel comfortable in deflationary regime. But I bet you've had a lot of conversations about inflationary regimes lately. And you know, what is all this fiscal stimulus going to do? And how, how is it going to look? Well, those currencies that look deflationary in bad times are going to go up in inflationary regimes. Right? We should feel confident that commodities will go up with inflation. And so Aussie dollar could. That means if you're not using options, you have kind of unlimited upside downside on this stuff, right? And so if we're going to use the Aussie dollar and you're saying short it as a kind of a safe haven or, or a protective instrument for your portfolio, a big inflationary regime could be a bit of a shock, right? And the same might be for Canadian currency, commodities. So there's, there's quite a bit of difficulty anytime we start going a further afield from you know, what bonds have done, right? Bonds were kind of always a nice risk offset. But one of the things we haven't even mentioned is that correlations could change, right? Bond equity correlation has been very reliable. And so we haven't been challenged with a, a universe where bonds and equities go down simultaneously since the 90s, right? Maybe even the 70s in terms of meaningful size. I think what we're going to see is a lot of regime shifts going forward. I don't think we have a good grasp on what the aftershocks of the pandemic are. So we can have a lot of movement in currencies, a lot of movement in bonds, different than what we're expecting. So you kind of alluded to where we're going with the bond replacement argument in a sense, and maybe it's a two-part discussion. The first part is, should you replace bonds? And the second part is, if you decide you shouldn't, you know, do you go 100% risk on, and then what? You know, how do you deal with a crash? And I think you kind of said, maybe you should just go 100% risk on. And that's a little bit what we're looking at. What does it look like with 100% risk on? What are the tails? What are the crashes look? And what can you do to mitigate that crash risk? 
And, you know, in our business, people have been trying to replicate bonds for decades. And so they would take a bunch of positive carry stuff and staple it together, glue it in a basket, take a bunch of tail hedges and trend and interesting kind of defensive looking things and glue that together, mush it all together and make this Frankenstein that was going to be a bond replacement. And you can tell that I'm not a strong advocate of doing that kind of stuff. Um, these days, though, if I start with a construct that bonds don't make anything, then maybe the construct for me is just to build something that's risk mitigating, right? And try to reduce the drag. And that's the first step to having an all risk portfolio. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So on that note, something you said that really resonates is the fact that we don't really know what the aftermath of the COVID-19 shock is really going to look like. And it makes me wonder, how can you go about having any conviction in portfolio construction or, or whatever it may be um, going forwards from this point in time when there still are so many unknowns and so many questions about what the economy is going to look like post-COVID, when we are actually even going to get to a post-COVID world? Uh, I mean, it's really difficult to kind of make any decisions, it feels like. It does feel like that. And, and the best way to kind of articulate our view on that as a firm is take a look at all the forecasts for the market at the beginning of the last four years, right? And the, the, the strategists never get it right. And, and we're not saying we're smarter. We're saying we probably wouldn't get it right either. We've got Cambridge and Oxford quants running all over the place in London, and nobody's pretending that they can get that right. And so if none of us really can come together and get pretty decent forecasts, you know, as it is, if everyone's forecasts were right, then the market would immediately move to the forecast, right? We can kind of accept this as an odd tautology. But given that none of us can forecast it right, our view is that going forward, we can't get the regimes. It's not quite the same as we remember everything. So maybe directly attacking risk is the way you have to go. So, you know, tail hedging is very expensive, but there are things you can do with futures and there are other things you can do to start attacking the specific risk profile of your portfolio. And I think the whole conversation about bonds, you never really had to explain any, to anyone how, well, bonds didn't make as much during a crisis as we thought because they kind of kept doing what you needed to. Now, going back to the gold and the FX and tail hedging, all these conversations, 
when they don't work, you wind up with this what happened was conversation. And, and no CIO of a pension or no investor in a fund, no one likes to hear what happened was as the first few words introducing what went wrong, right? Nobody ever says what happened was we really did a great job and we made a lot of money for you. It's always what happened was different from what we expected. And so, you know, as we talk about bond replacements, what we really want to have is things that just directly attack the exact risk we have. And maybe we have to accept that there's a drag associated with doing that kind of exact risk attack. So, you know, if I'm going to use the Japanese yen to hedge equities and it doesn't work, I can lose a lot. Whereas if I use, you know, puts and I spent a little too much, I know it's going to work. And that's the real tension. Like, how do I reconcile between the cost of mitigating risk and the potential return? Sarah, I, I can't get that image of Cambridge and uh, who was the other one? Where are the quants? Oxford. Cambridge, Cambridge <laughs> and Oxford quants running all over London. It's it sounds like a Monty Python or a uh, uh, Benny Hill skit. Uh, and the truth is, they probably never move from their desks. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but Peter, you know, you bring up uh, tail risk hedging, and I, mean, I assume the best. I don't know. Maybe the only way to do that is in is in the options market. Um, and what a crazy year it's been for the options market. I mean, we, we've come around to this idea that the, the retail day traders of the world sort of became almost this new whale in the options market. And, and correct me if I think if I'm sort of off base in that description, but at least in the press, that's kind of the picture that's been presented. Has this new sort of mom and pop or maybe it's college kid in a basement day trader, this whole new class of, of options player... Have they really shifted sort of the complexion of the options market? Is it a permanent shift? And, you know, boy, I would think for a sophisticated shop like yours, that's kind of uh, easy pickings to sort of to sort of exploit this kind of this kind of new uh, fast money coming into the market. I know that's a 12 part. Yeah, I, I was but, actually but, thinking that was 10 parts, but this that's is my fine. specialty. Parts, yeah. Then if it <laughs> was 10 parts, then it was two less <laughs> right. than usual. So, so you're lucky. But, so but like, it. it Answer however many parts you, you feel like answering. It's a bit like quiz show. I'll take the fourth part first. <laughs> so, so the first part, I, I, you know, maybe I'll broadly talk about what I think is happening in options. So, to, to begin with, the retail dynamic is a big change. So, we used to see retail investors buying the short vol ETF products like the XIV, and of course, we all remember the spectacular outcome that worked in out well. 2018. And yeah. keep in mind that the vol industry has created a long vol only product called the VXX, which is down. 99% from its high and created a short vol product that was 85% loss in a day. So, you know, it's the same underlying after all. So it's a little confusing, I think, to investors, but they, steep, they keep seeing want to come back to these sort of things, these, these structured products. But what I will say is that's a shift, one, that they're really not selling vol the same magnitude as they used to be. And, and you are right, they've turned buyer of sorts. Right, so just looking at the top five tech stocks, we saw about $30 billion in, in volume a day trading in 2019. Decent sized number, it sounds like a lot. That number in August of this year was as high as $120 billion. So that's a lot. And retail investors, you know, there's a big day trading component. They tend to want to buy low-cost options. It doesn't mean they're cheap. That means they're shorter dated, right? A, a one-year option costs a lot more than a one-week. And if you want the most bang for your buck, especially as a day trader, you'll go for short-dated options. So that's a real dynamic. They're net buying them. The market makers who sell them have to kind of hedge around it. They have to make a lot of moves to portfolio. So we saw some vol spikes even as the market was going up, vol was going up. That's a pretty unusual phenomenon. We only saw it kind of 99, 2000. 
you could flippantly say we know how that ended, but it took a while for that to end, right? So it's a transitory thing that retail's playing a lot in options. But how long it lasts, you know, it could be a work from home thing. We, we can probably attribute it to something to that. If you're making some money, you keep doing it. So that's one. But there are a number of other transitory and structural changes to the market. And I, uh, maybe I'll run through them quickly. You know, the election's passed. That was transitory, or at least it's almost passed. <laughs> you know, so let's assume it's passed. <laughs> Spencer, yes. Okay. It's passed, ending with the question mark. It's passed. Yes, we'll, we'll just have, we'll, we'll footnote it in, you know, typical fashion, <laughs> subject to terms and conditions, whatever they <laughs> um, So, So that's passed to degree, right? We still have the Georgia outcome. I don't know that changes the balance of power enough to have big legislation, but that's there. The pandemic although it doesn't feel transitory, is after all transitory as well, right? So at some point, the pandemic will be over and things will normalize. And maybe that's unfortunately a year out or less, depends on your vaccine view. So those transitory things pass, but they're largely responsible for the fact that vol is about double where it was when the S&P was here earlier in the year. So doubles a lot higher. So that's kind of, we need to see that all clear up, but there's the structural change, which we keep coming back to the same problem, which is the bond problem. You know, if bonds aren't the best thing to diversify your portfolio and protect you, it may mean that you're going to tail hedging. And so although tail hedging is twice as expensive now as it was in January, people might be more drawn to it, partially because they need to do something defensive with less return from bonds, potentially going forward. And secondarily, because you know, the market's gone up a heck of a lot. And so, you know, an option might look expensive to a professional vol guy, but to someone buying a put saying, I think this market could fall 30%, it's cheap to the intellectual scenario of things could be really bad. And that's certainly true in tech stocks, right? We have plenty of stocks up 100%. If it costs you 5% to buy a 25% out of the money put, if everything goes back to normal, you just made 70% in your head, right? That seems pretty good. And so I think that's part of the dynamic as well. I think it's that time. Oh, it is that time indeed. Hopefully Peter came prepared for that time. <laughs> I, I was forewarned. That, that very special time. <laughs> Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Sarah, let's start with uh, whoever is sliding into your DMs. I, I, no one slides into my DMs. I don't know why. I don't, uh, no idea. I'm gonna ever, yeah. Next time, someone, Mike's on Twitter, Reganonymous. It's a great Twitter handle. Go the, check it the, out. The, 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 the DMs are open. Go ahead. <laughs> All what, right. did, what, did, uh, what did they say? So we're going to play a little bit of Price is Right. This comes from at Jamie Blasco B. Uh, he said, maybe you can play the Price is Right with Mike this time. So I'm going to run you through this scenario here, both of you. Uh, basically, a racing pigeon. Uh, so first of all, I did not know that pigeon racing was a thing. Apparently, it very much is. Uh, but there was an auction recently for a racing pigeon. I'll give you some details. Belgian bread, uh, supposedly top of the pack. Um, so how much do you think this racing pigeon went for? Ooh, I, I like this guy. I can't participate because <laughs> I read this. Oh. <laughs> so I'm not going to pretend that. erudition I don't have. <laughs> I told you you're a natural at this, Peter. <laughs> I should have just gone for like $5,000 away from the price. but <laughs> We would have been amazed at how, how correct you were. Does this pigeon have a, a record, you know, win-loss record we can look at? Um, so... I don't have the win-loss record in front of me. However, I can tell you that this is a winning pigeon. This is this is a, an elite pigeon. You're, you're telling me this is pigeon. the the Usain Bolt of pigeons. Yes, I take exactly. it exactly. Okay, 
for that pigeon, I would bid $500,000 for that pigeon. Hmm. That's actually pretty good as a starting point because I was in the tens of thousands. <laughs> just thinking there's a crazy person who's got ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to throw at a bird. All right, you ready oh. for this? You ready for this? A wealthy Chinese pigeon racing fan put down a record price of 1.6 million euros, which comes out to $1.9 million Wow! for this wow. pigeon. Uh, and the purpose, I guess, is he already owns another pigeon that is also an elite pigeon. And I think the goal is to breed the two, to create an extra elite pigeon. Oh. Oh my gosh. It's a then, bit like making Bitcoin at that price. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's mining mining pigeons. Well, I, well now I'm fat. Now I, I I will not be able to think of anything else until I research racing pigeons. This, Mike's that's gonna get really into pigeon racing now. Congrats. Yeah, but now you now that you're getting into it, you know that that, that bubble's over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. I know, right. Yeah, once I find out, out about it, I'm like the shoe shine boy of uh, the, the pigeon racing world. I'm, gl- I'm right, glad you... That, I got it. It's amazing. I got to hand it to that guy. That's pretty good. Oh, I, I, I said to him immediately, I said, yes, this is amazing. I will absolutely <laughs> play Prices Right with Mike. And I'm glad that we got to flip the uh, tables on you this time because it's, it's a hard game. It is. When you have it's nothing to compare it to, you have no idea what a previous racing pigeon has gone for. It's difficult. I know. I know. I, the price discovery in racing pigeons is, is tough. I, I, I've, I've, uh, but hey, all right, the anchoring uh, is bad. All you have to be is anchored, and you could just be wrong. Okay. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was going to anchor you by saying $5,000 off, because I thought you'd be in the 100000 range by definition. So, so much for so behavioral almost, finance. Almost $2 million. But I mean, it makes you, it leads you to believe that there are people that must be betting some pretty serious bucks on, on racing pigeons if you're going to. If you're going to buy one for $2 million. I mean, that's like a thoroughbred Kentucky Derby winner type of I'm price. Just, Maybe not a winner, but I'm I'm very confused there. about how, you, like, is there a track set up for the pigeons? They can fly. How do they stay on the track? I don't really understand. I guess I'm going to have to look this up, but. No, I, I think this is they, in the messenger pigeon genre. So yeah. It's long so. distance. Yeah. But, hey, fun, I, didn't, fun. I didn't read the whole article because once you get past the price, you're kind of. You know, intellectually, it's hard to say what's gonna what's gonna compel me to really say this is the right price, and it totally fits. <laughs> it's true, yeah. right, right, right? All right, Peter. Well, I got to say, you got a tough tough act to beat. Can you beat the uh, the racing pigeon for one point nine million? Was it? Wow. Well, no, I can't give you absurd because it's, you know that's that's a pretty unfair benchmark. <laughs> but but the the thing that I thought was pretty interesting. So after the vaccine hits, we we saw big shifts in momentum stocks. You know, growth got a decent hit and maybe value got a jump. But one of the things I thought was pretty fascinating is just watching Zoom over the course of the year. And I'm not making an opinion at all about the relative valuation of Zoom and whether you should buy or sell it because that's not our, our bag. But I do think it's pretty fascinating watching a stock go from 17 billion to 160 billion. You know, as a replacement to the entire airline sector in the U.S. and the entire hotel sector. <laughs> and so Zoom at one point was worth more than those two sectors combined. And actually, I thought, okay, well, that's crazy. But then after the, the vaccine hits, Zoom fell $50 billion in market cap, and those two sectors picked up $50 billion in market cap. So I thought it was just kind of a fascinating, maybe that's how it was supposed to turn out kind of day, regardless of whether you think Zoom should replace the entire airline and lodging industry in the United States or not. <laughs> So I, I thought it was pretty interesting, and it's a sign of a lot of things that are going on in the market. So even when we see the market steadily churning a bit higher, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on beneath the surface of this, and, and a lot of rotations, and uh, you know, what's Zoom worth? What's you know, what's work from home look like a year from now? And I think yeah. we all got to grapple with that, in addition to all the other things we've got to worry about in our portfolios. Absolutely, absolutely. 
That's a pretty clean rotation there. Fifty billion out of Zoom and fifty billion a, back in. Yeah, it was, it was straightforward. It just <laughs> pretty, you know, but you got a lot of planes and hotels for that. Right. <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing uh, when you look at some of the runs, some of the pickups in market cap that we have seen in individual companies this year, and what's come out of entire industries, and just comparing them. I mean, it is. It's absolutely. It's wild. And, and after all, Amazon pioneered this, right? In retail spaces, very small market cap to. Amazon's market capitalization related to retail, yeah. right? And so they're right. converting 10, 15 PE multiple kind of businesses into 100 multiple, right? So every right. dollar they right. take has a huge multiple sign. So I guess it's okay in that context, but it's pretty fascinating to, to, to watch it kind of evolve over time. Yeah, it doesn't seem sustainable in the long run, though, I guess. Uh, well, it never feels sustainable. But then, I mean, in 2000, would you have yeah. guessed that Amazon would be worth a trillion and a half? You would, Fair you point. Know, I'm the, I'm the tail hedge guy, so I would have been sitting there. Oh, you guys are so <laughs> and in 2002, I would have had all this, you know, victory celebrating. <laughs> so, all right, I got a prices right for you two now. Let's do it. Uh, this is in the alternative asset space, and when I say alternative, I mean it. Uh, More alternative than the, pigeons. Uh, I, maybe not. Maybe not. That's about as alternative as it gets. This is uh, courtesy of the BBC. Uh, this was an auction that occurred in, in uh, the UK, so you'll have to price this in, uh, in sterling. A lock of Elvis Presley's hair sold at auction in the UK. Apparently, Elvis had this barber who used to travel around with him and cut his hair. And the guy would, uh, you know, the hair that would fall into the, the uh, smock that he'd put around Elvis, he'd pack it up, put it in his bag. And then when he'd get home, he'd unload all this hair and say, you know, maybe the fans would like this. So we'd give out little snippets of hair to fans. And then I guess the guy went broke and started selling the locks of hair to, to people. So this Elvis hairlock was sold to a collector who resold it uh, recently in the UK. In pounds sterling, Peter, what would you pay for a, a lock of Elvis Presley's hair? Well, that's a great out because you just told me what I would pay. So I don't actually have to get the price right. <laughs> and I can say, I would say I pay very little for it because I just wouldn't even believe it's real. Okay. But well, I, rephrase I, I'm the go question. I'm going to go through a number anyway. Just, just, you know, let's yeah. say I had to make a market for lack of <laughs> And so I'm going to, I just don't think it's worth a pigeon. So I'm going to sit there quietly at a hundred thousand and, and, and call it a day. It's the most I feel like I can lose on this. And, you know, maybe I can find someone a year or two from now. <laughs> get me out. All right. I'm trying to keep my poker face and not give it away, Sarah. Uh, I, I feel like I have a, a comparison here. So, Peter, just so you know, in another in another episode, Mike, I kid you not, brought us uh, Michael Jackson's IV basket, uh, which oh. went for a lot less than we had expected it to go for. Well, it's so, a bit creepy, no? It, it's extremely creepy. <laughs> it's very creepy. But what yes. I'm thinking is that if Michael Jackson's IV basket went for much less than expected... Then Elvis I'm going to own some Elvis hair. hair lock can't have, <laughs> no way it went for a hundred thousand. So I'm going to go a little bit lower. Uh, I'm going to go at 30,000 and I still think I'm maybe 30, high, but. Okay. I like that deductive reasoning you employed you. In, in there, Sarah. Yeah, I, I like would not point going out... first. Can I do that too? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to guess over, I would have guessed over both of you guys. Cause again, I, th I think, I feel like the hair, you could clone Elvis with this hair someday, some mad Scientists could clone Elvis, so you got to you got to factor that into the valuation. But it's only four thousand quid. I thought Ooh. it was really low. Yeah, wow. yeah, that I, hurts. I, yeah, I, I I I'm with you. I think it's a six figure uh, collectible. But I guess yeah. who knows? Maybe this barber has just flooded the market with uh, too, Elvis too hair locks. Hair. And, 
Yeah. Well, yeah. let's hope that the listeners don't actually attribute my skill at pricing any <laughs> other <laughs> portfolio construction skill. Uh, <laughs> I, most people don't want to erode all the, the tax avoidance of my strategy is quite good. <laughs> I I am honestly I am there, there's nothing to compare them to. I am so off every single week. <laughs> yeah. It's point. tough. I pick. I, I know. I picked the tough ones. I picked. Them. I would. I would tell you though, you guys. I would have. I would have taken. I would have gone above both of you. So 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 pretty good. Good good uh, good answers. I think. But sorry, is that? Are you off the hook then with your? No, I did Twitter come with friends? one. And Peter. Oh, mentioned you got your own. Okay. And I, I've got to do it just because we haven't mentioned it in so long. Uh, and again, this could also be described as a cop out. But I'm going to go ahead and mention Bitcoin because we saw it rise above 18,000 uh, for the first time since 2017, uh, up 150% this year. It's almost as if it came out of nowhere. Uh, the beginning of the year, we closer to 7,000. So Bitcoin hype coming back. Pretty crazy. You could buy four Elvis hairlocks for one, <laughs> one Bitcoin at this point. Well, I, I know the three of us could chat for likely hours longer, but I know we've already gone well over our time limit. So we've got to leave it there. Uh, Peter Van Doyewert, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Quite fun. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Goscore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.